Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 through 13. Uh, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 through 13. If you don't have a Bible, you can find a Bible in the chair in front of you, and you can turn to page 899. Uh, please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things are for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This, this is the word of the Lord. Morning, everyone. Would you join me as we continue to worship as we pray? Lord God, source of all light, by your word, you give light to the soul. Would you pour out on us the spirit of wisdom and understanding that our hearts and minds may be opened through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, we pray. Amen. Let's say you're a guy or a gal, maybe 25, 28, and you have been living a life in Greece like 2,000 years ago, and every day, your conscious life, you've seen gods and idols where you lived. These idols were everywhere, on the street, the temples, and the houses you visited, houses you lived, but portals of the doors and rooms and homes, columns in the street, you would see statues of idols everywhere. It's all you've known, and you bow down to it. You've heard testimonies given to these gods. When you've seen disasters and catastrophes, people would attribute to them, to the gods. And you've seen, and maybe even participated in filthy pagan orgies in the name of these gods. This was your whole life. After all, this was what was availed to you. And all of a sudden, you hear the gospel, and you turn your life to Christ. You make a commitment to Christ and you say, you know what, I don't want to have anything to do with this kind of vile life with this false gods. 
While you are new in faith, another brother, another sister, who's been following Christ a lot longer, tells you that, you know what, there are no idols and no gods there. Just come along and eat from the food that's been offered to them. But you will never be able to say, not yet, with the same kind of ease or conviction that this mature brother or sister is telling you. It will take you time for that truth to sink in. You might know it in your head, but it's too real for you. This lifestyle culture that you've been so infused with is so intimate because it's the only thing that you've been living within. This false system has been just part of your entire life. You're too emotionally connected and integrated. It's going to take time for the truth to sink in and the truth to convict and connect your heart. And this is what Paul is saying, what God's word is telling us. It's fine to say idol is nothing, but not everyone truly understands that and lives that and feels that reality. That guy, that young convert who takes a bite is going to feel that despicable God that he is recently chosen to walk away from. And he's going to feel guilty. He's going to feel sinful. And it's going to destroy his soul and might even lead him back to that pagan old way. The younger, the recent convert, or some of us even who might have lived this Christian life for a long time, um, might still have a tendency to have a simple, legalistic tendency. We haven't internalized our faith. We are not growing in understanding and growing in basic and mature biblical principle. We look for simple do's and don'ts, and we don't want to take that challenge of understanding, learning, principles to apply, not just simple list. And there are those of us who have more knowledge, yet are not aware, not conscious, not thinking about those who are weaker in faith, in conscious, conscience, in knowledge, and we're consumed with our own conscience. As long as I'm not convicted in a bad way, why can't I live out my freedom, my right my liberty in Christ. Last week, we started chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, kind of summarizes the rest of the passage that Elder Sung read, and we are going to look through. And it tells us that no matter how much knowledge you have, and we'll see the specific knowledge that these Corinthians believed they had, and they, were, they had correct beliefs, yet truth, knowledge without love, was empty, really. And that if you truly do love God, we were reminded that God 
first knows you. So it keeps us humble. It keeps us humble in the way we treat, live out the knowledge that we have received. Let's look through the passage. Now, in the first couple of verses from verse 4 through 6, we, we see a couple of things. There are two knowledge truths that the Corinthian church um, have been kind of simmering, and they are basic truths, orthodox truth. They're great truths. Idols have no real existence, and there is no God but one. Now, back in those days, idols were made physically with people's hands out of stone, wood, or metal. And the Corinthians rightly believed, at least the, the mature ones, the stronger ones, believed that no gods were behind it. After all, can you imagine making something out of steel and say there is some real spiritual reality to this thing that someone made from the, you know, Whatever it is, it would be ridiculous. And that's what the Corinthians were recognizing, that nobody is there. God is not in this thing that someone created. And also in connection with the reality that idols don't exist, the truth, as we, you know, Israelites have been um, Repeating regularly, daily from Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They knew that idols were nothing at all. And they also knew with that, that there is no God but one. And with this knowledge, this technical, factual level, there's really no issue if food was offered to this idol and I were to consume it. But remember, this person has been living his entire life in a polytheistic culture where gods were everywhere, idols were everywhere. He, she has seen, felt, lived, witnessed, walked on, anything and everything that continued to resemble and remind him of this kind of a polytheistic cultural reality. There are two things I want us to kind of pause before, as we continue is um, there's this tension. On one hand, idols actually have no existence. There's nothing in there. There's nothing in something that man has created with his hand. However, on the other hand, there is actually real demonic reality and spiritual presence in the world we live in. Now, these gods are actually, can't be compared to the Lord God who created everything. But as we see later on, even within the same chapter, um, participating in such demonic activity was shunned. And that comes up in chapter 10, um, as we will get to later. But here, we're talking about in comparison to the creator God, who alone is, will be, any other, these gods or idols, they can't compare. They're, 
reality doesn't compare to the reality, the existence of the Lord God. So we, we see this so-called gods because these imaginary gods actually have no um, intrinsic existence. They're kind of fakes. They are, some are fakes. They're not real. Some are actual manifestations of demons, but not are truly God in the way the Lord God is true. Now, remember when Apostle Paul was traveling in his missionary journeys, he stopped by in Ephesus and he uh, encountered this guy by the name of Demetrius, a pagan silversmith who earned his wages by making idols and selling, profiteering from that. And this is what he says of Paul. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Duh. I think Apostle would agree with the psalmist who wrote 115, their idols and silver and gold, the work of human hands. They, are, they have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. I mean, we went through this when we went through Exodus, but the second commandment, after you shall have no other gods before me, is you shall not make any idols of any images, whether from the heaven or the earth or under the water, right? These so-called gods, though they don't have the reality in the way the Lord God exists, this man, this woman who lived 20 plus years of his life, her life in Corinth, you know, you take time to walk around the city, you will see shrines and idols everywhere. So in that sense, they exist. They're visible. Paul's not renouncing monotheism when he acknowledges these so-called gods because these pagan gods of Hermes, Artemis, Apollo would be visible in the cities that these people lived now, it is also interesting because I think it's intentional when we see the term gods and lords referenced here uh, to talk about the pagan gods and lords. Uh, most likely, the gods refer to traditional deities of the Greco-Roman pantheon, um, and the lords probably refer to kind of uh, venerated figures. And remember, in New Testament, people like Caesar will be considered lord, curios, right? And... If we go a little bit further, it's preparing us to get to the Lord God, and we will see um, one God and one Lord. It's not an accident in comparison to these false gods and lords that people see around to the true Lord. One God, one Lord. You know, it's tempting to think this kind of a juxtaposition between knowledge and love, but as we are reminded, all the letters that Apostle Paul writes is because there is a problem in church 
there's a correction to be taught, an application to be subjecting the people to. And here in the context of the danger of just having knowledge and not displaying and living out love, we see an important biblical doctrine of God right here. That there's only one true God. Everything coming from, and the, the preposition from is significant, from the Father. And all believers exist, exist for the Father. So the origin is from the Father. The end goal is for the Father. But through the means is through the Son, Jesus Christ, the Lord. One God from and to that we are to live. One Lord. Through, we come to the Father. In comparison with the Creator and Divine Son, Jesus Christ, demons, demonic forces are all nothing because they're created beings. Demons do exist, but it's not a battle of yin and yang. They're not equal in power or in reality. God created everything. God created these angels who later on fell. This doctrine uh, teaches the quality, in essence, of God the Father with the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, when you look at Deuteronomy 6.4, I, I mentioned it before, but it it, this is what Jews recite twice a day, and they recite, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And here when we read verse 6 from chapter 8, you see similarities of the Shema being repeated here. For us, there is one God, the Father from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. We do need to know the truth. Truth alone is not sufficient, but we do need to know the truth. Apostle Paul continues in verses 7 and 8, um, telling us, however, not all possess this knowledge. This knowledge that, you know what, um, the very things that Apostle Paul talked about, um, um, idols have no existence, there is no God but one. Um, not, not all people have this knowledge. But some, through formal association, like we talked about it before, with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Now, back in those days, um, Corinth was um, situated in this isthmus um, where it connected two large bodies of water, and you know, it's like a port city, had two major ports, ships were going through, and they had these games. These are not Olympic games, but these um, Isthmian games, and held every two years. And it's kind of a pan-Hellenistic games of ancient Greece. And um, they uh, commemorated different gods, uh, including uh, Poseidon, and these were public feasts. And there's probably a good chance that um, any, any you know, 
when participating would be visible in terms of their association and participation. So it is probable that if a younger convert sees an older, mature one in these events, they would easily possibly think that they are sensing to this kind of pagan worship. And as a weaker brother, a weaker sister, in seeing a mature one and wanting to be um, accepted, not um, look like the one who can't handle this maturity, might get tempted to participate in this that they're not ready to participate in because for them, it's still too visceral, too real. And then going against a weaker conscience because they don't want to feel ashamed by not looking mature, they go along. But inside, as they're going along, they're screaming inside. And maybe you can remember a time when Your conscience is telling you you shouldn't do this, but because you're with friends or you, uh, friends that you want to be accepted by, or friends or people that you respected that you thought you, you should be able to follow, but your personal conscience was not at ease, but you were compelled to still go along. And inside you're like just shaking because this is not quite right with you and for you. You see, the conscience that God gives us, every one of us here has a conscience, but it's all functioning in a different way because every one of us are a different season in life. We have different knowledge. Our level of sensitivity is different. Conscience serves as an internal revealer, internal umpire. It really reveals what we've been taught. So if we've been taught well, Conscience will convict us in a right way. However, if the majority of our life we've spent infused in an understanding in a culture that is against the scripture, then it's going to take time for the truth of this word of God to seep in and recalibrate what we know and how we feel and connect that. We conscience is based on inaccurate, unbiblical knowledge. What it says, whether it says okay or not okay, is actually inaccurate if the foundation of that is off base. Now, when we in our current contemporary vocabulary use the word weak conscience, we probably think of someone um, perhaps with a poorly developed moral sense Um, Someone who doesn't feel quite guilty when he or she ought to, weak conscience. But when Bible here uses weakness in the context of conscience, it's actually kind of the opposite in the way we contemporarily use weak conscience. Here we're talking, Bible is using the word, the, the, the term weak conscience to refer to someone who is too easily feeling defiled here. Because biblical truth isn't truly penetrating their heart. Um, They're feeling often too guilty, always guilty, always condemned, always defiled. Instead of really embracing the gospel truth and the love of Christ and the grace that is offered. And that voice 
just gets really loud. That voice of accusation, condemnation, A defiled conscience is one that's been ignored and violated again. And if you keep defiling your conscience and you don't heed it, it will create confusion, it will create resentment and guilt and even lapsing. In that young man's mind, he has committed sin because his conscience is not ready to participate in that meal. When God tells us in our conscience not to do something, that means we're not ready to go there. We're not ready to open that door. Don't ignore that. And if you, because you know better, is, and you're with a brother or sister, and you are ignoring that, what God's doing or not doing in that person's heart, and you are urging them to take that step through that door that, that they're not ready to enter through, as we'll see, then you are sinning. You're, when you cause them to sin, you are offending God and um, offending what God has done in dying for this brother or sister in Christ. Now, Paul does agree that eating or not eating has really no spiritual significance. It doesn't commend us to God. It doesn't bring us closer to God or away from God, food itself. Now, gluttony is sin, so we shouldn't be over-consuming. And, you know, if you're allergic to something, you shouldn't consume. That's just foolish. Um, so we're not talking about those kind of matters, but in terms of what Jesus says about food, he, he taught when we went through the Gospels that there's nothing um, outside of man which going into him can defile him. It's what comes out that defiles a person. And if you remember uh, Apostle Peter in Book of Acts, he's considering certain types of food as unclean, certain types of people as unclean. But in that vision in Acts 10, Jesus, the Lord tells Peter, to kill and eat, both figuratively and literally, accepting Gentiles as part of faith, as well as food, referring to those kind of food that was previously considered unclean. And Paul tells Timothy his, um, that we are to receive all food with thanksgiving. So food in and of itself doesn't draw us closer to God or necessarily away from God. But as we will see in continuing here, so in the first three verses of the chapter, we see the, the setup of the thesis, and the rest of the chapter, we see how it gets fleshed out, right? And in verses from 9 through 11, we see Paul talking about stumbling blocks. These are basically uh, things that trigger uh, like an animal trap, and he warns the, these are stronger Corinthians, take care that this right... This liberty that you have of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block for the weak. Um, so if they see you do it, and it causes them to do it, that's what's the offense. Because it will make them sin against God and may indeed destroy them. A stumbling block causes potentially a person to fall into sin 
it sets them as an example, goes against their conscience, makes them guilty, and they can't handle it. And like I said before, if that person enters through that door, he might very well return to his old way of pagan religious lifestyle because it's too raw for him. God has closed that conscience to keep him out of that area. So please, don't force a brother or a sister what God is not forcing them. It is never right to violate someone's conscience. You have to slow down. You have to slow down to help them understand, help them learn, help them mature. Because if we don't, we run the risk of ruining that brother or sister. Because Christian liberty, Christian right, must never be used at the expense of another Christian brother or sister who has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And as we mature, as we are learning in knowledge, God begins to allow more doors to be opened and we enable us to do more things that we wouldn't um, earlier be able to do. If you think about a child, I mean, we have Michaela here, we have Levi, we have Claire, we have older kids who are outside in children's ministry, but even in children's ministry versus kids here, you know, just because they can physically hold something, we wouldn't give Levi a sharp tool. We wouldn't let him go out into the street. Most of the kids in our children's ministry, especially the younger ones, we wouldn't let them go into the street. I wouldn't let even my 12-year-old Calvin work a dangerous machine like a saw or a dangerous electrical appliance. Now, as they get older, as they understand the danger of these things and how to handle these things in right time, we will introduce our children to different things because we know that they are a little more ready to handle different things. It will take Levi a lot longer because he's a lot younger. As he's wandering around, he's poking things, picking things up, and there's mom, rightly making sure he doesn't do anything. We can't expect a recent convert to Christianity to understand what is at stake with everything. And God confines that person's spiritual conscience. And as his or her knowledge matures and conscience begins to expand, he or she will begin to enable to go through doors that before they would not have been comfortable to enter through. But that is really God's time. Just because I can walk through and have no problem in my conscience does not mean that we encourage someone else who's not ready to go through that door. Because if we do, we destroy them. We destroy the younger brother or younger sister by our knowledge for whom Christ died. And that offends God.
There's a story of a guy who, unfortunately, this happens more often than you would like to see, but there is a story of a guy who fell off a seven-story building, and a man caught him. In saving his life, the man under died. Um, the father of the man who lost his life in saving someone else um, spent the rest of his life giving money and helping this guy who survived. When someone asked him, why are you doing this? The father began to explain that he wanted to honor his son's love by giving anything and everything he had for the guy that he valued enough to die for. That is really a glimpse of the mentality that us Christians are called to have toward other fellow Christian brothers and sisters. We don't have to agree with everything or even approve everything of a younger other Christian. But it reminds us this beautiful dignity that we see, the value that we see when we understand and accept what Christ has done for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. If Jesus loved this brother or sister enough to die for his sins, shouldn't we love this brother or sister who is weak in conscience? Is it so hard for us to not eat certain food or not do something for this person that Christ so loved and died for? We hear in verse 12 through 13, as the chapter comes to a close, that thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Please don't ever violate your conscience or encourage anyone to violate their conscience. Conscience is God's doorkeeper. And as we continue to wait and continue to be intentional in growing in knowledge, and only then will we encourage others to walk through those doors. Jesus said in Matthew 18, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it will be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. A mature Christian is not one who just demands his right. Actually, mature people don't generally do that. They don't do that because they have superior knowledge, but he or she is willing and able to set, a right, set his or her rights on the back burner because they have interest in saving his brother, his sister, than simply enjoying the liberty. As Christians, we're not free to just do whatever we please. We can't, in our freedom, hurt our brothers or sisters. A truly free person can engage in certain neutral activities, but at the same time, can also refrain from engaging in that same thing. If you find yourself 
not willing to refrain from certain neutral activities, it means you're enslaved to it. If I can't refrain, but I have to, I have the right to, I ought to, then there's a good chance that we are enslaved to that neutral thing that was never meant to bring us closer to God or bring us away from God, but now it is because it has shifted because now it is necessary for you. Brothers and sisters, we have great freedom in the gospel. But as Christians, we are to continue to grow in understanding what this freedom entails. And sometimes our freedom must be sacrificed when it stumbles others. And we need to remember that when we cause a fellow believer to sin, we sin against Christ. Brothers, sisters, are you aware of weaker brothers and sisters around you? If so, how is your exercise of freedom how might it be causing them to sin? If you consider yourself weak in conscience, what are you doing to improve in your understanding of truth? Or do you find yourself just condemning those who are living out the freedom that they have in the gospel? As we get ready for the Lord's Supper I'm going to invite you to take some time praying, but let me first close with a prayer. Join with me. Lord God, we confess that as sinners, we have abused the freedom that the liberty you have given us in the gospel. And instead of thinking of those who are weak in faith, that we have abused the freedom and harmed and stumbled and caused weaker brothers and sisters to sin, would you forgive us? And for those of us here whose conscience are weak, whether because we have recently turned to you and we haven't allowed the truth of your gospel truth of the biblical principles to really soak in, or whether because we like things easy and we've just been living in a way of understanding Christianity as a list of do's and don'ts, God, we are humbled because we know we need to grow and mature that much more. Lord, have mercy on us. Pray that as we prepare our hearts to come before the table, that, Lord, we would examine our hearts and that, Lord, we would come in a worthy manner. God, we're weak, so desperately weak. But our only hope is in you. He who began the good work, you're going to be the one faithful to finish what you began in us.
So, Lord, we look to you, one God, one Lord. In Christ's name we pray.